Welcome to Parsha in Progress. I'm Abby Pogrebin, author of My Jewish Year. And I'm Rabbi Dov Linzer, president of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah Rabbinical School. And we're two very different Jews talking about the very same Torah together. Today, we're asking a pretty fundamental macro question that's mm. kind of amazing we haven't fully explored for this podcast. Namely, how do we deal with the Torah that makes us squirm? Right. What do we do with a text that's, you know, both sacred and at the same time in conflict with our contemporary values that seems to go against some of our most basic ethical principles? Okay, so here's the tough Torah that's on the table today. It's the chapter known as Sota in Parsha Naso, in which any woman who's suspected of infidelity is forced to undergo a pretty barbaric test to prove her guilt or her innocence. Well, I'm not sure I'd say it's barbaric, but I would agree that it's pretty shaming, demeaning, and degrading. Which is barbaric, (laughs) in my estimation. We can debate that. So here we go. We're in Numbers 512. If any man's wife has gone astray and broken faith with him, in that a man has had carnal relations with her unbeknown to her husband— and she keeps secret the fact that she has defiled herself without being forced, and there is no witness against her. But a fit of jealousy comes over him, that's the husband, and he is wrought up, that's worked up, about the wife who has defiled herself. The man shall bring his wife to the priest. Let's just pause and summarize the bizarro ritual she has to do just for the sake of time. Dove, what does she have to do? All right, so the woman is brought to the temple before the priest, And the priest takes off her head covering, dishevels her hair, which is a form of stripping her and debasing her. It's like stripping her naked because hair of married women was covered at that time. And then there's a declaration of curses that will befall her if she did actually commit adultery. And it's pretty much implicitly assumed that she has. And then the priest scrapes off the words of the curses from the scroll they were written on. Right. How do you scrape off words? (laughs) You write them with ink on parchment, and then you scrape them off into water, which also is mixed with some of the dirt from the temple floor. And then the woman drinks this mixture. And if she's guilty, the verse says that her belly will expand, her thighs will collapse, and uh, leaves to the imagination what will happen next. But if she's innocent, then the verse says nothing will happen and she'll be fertile and conceive a child. Okay, so the text continues. If no man has lain with you, if you have not gone astray in defilement while married to your husband, be immune to harm from this water of bitterness that induces the spell. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and have defiled yourself, if a man other than your husband has had carnal relations with you, May the Lord make you a curse. May this water that induces the spell enter your body, causing the belly to distend and the thigh to sag. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you've got a lot of trouble with this. Well, that's an understatement. As far as I can tell, there's no redeeming lesson or moral in this chilling ritual. It honestly reminds me of the Salem witch trials. And I should mention that I played a brilliant Abigail in the Crucible in grade school. A woman is humiliated here. She's hauled before essentially a kangaroo court of some kind, because I guess it's the priest's business if she had an affair. While I'll point out no man is called to account for the same exact crime of adultery, then she's made to drink dirt, which presumably is going to sicken her. And she's lucky if her belly doesn't blow up. Absolutely. And, you know, I also have real problems with this whole text. And I will say that the problems even begin even before the ritual. You know, the fact that the husband can bring her to the temple just because he's jealous with, like, absolutely no evidence whatsoever. 
Um, and that gives him that gives him pretty unilateral and unchecked power over his wife. It's like it's almost like she's his property, which sort of was a reality in patriarchal you know societies. And she has no rights. And and it doesn't work in the reverse. If she suspects him of adultery, sorry, she can't do anything about that. She has no power over him, and she is considered to be defiled through an adulterous act, and not him. It's been a long time since anyone would say this feels right. like a justifiable way to handle a situation like this in a marriage. So how do you deal with these affronts to our moral sensibilities today? So the first way is to put it in historical context. So you're already worming your way out of it by saying (laughs) this is of the time. Yes, that this was an improvement over the way things used to be done. I mean, there in the past society, and in some places even today, a husband who suspected his wife of adultery could just uh, take the law into his own hands and have her killed. So the Sota ritual is actually progress for those types of societies, because instead of the husband being able to act capriciously and unilaterally, he has to bring her to essentially a court. So let me get this straight. You're okay with a biblical passage that runs entirely counter to our ethical sensibilities because it was better than the bad thing that was the norm of the time? I mean, if this is truly from God, shouldn't it be good in the absolute sense and not just relative to the time period? Yes, but the Torah was also given to human beings, and sometimes society isn't ready for radical change, and the Torah has to make a step in the right direction. So I don't think that everything in the Torah has to be the absolute um, moral goodness. I think that it is moving society, and I think the Sota ritual was a step in the right direction. So even if it was a watered-down trial of a woman, like watered it was— Watered-down, haha. Very, I wasn't even aware of the brilliance of that double <laughs> entendre. She, the woman is still debased, and she can still be found guilty. Right, but let's face it. No one's belly ever blew up from drinking dirty water, and it won't happen unless God intervenes miraculously to make it happen, and I don't think that happened often, if ever. So at the end of the day, what happens? She gets debased. That lets the husband feel that she was punished, and then she's found innocent because God isn't intervening miraculously. Again, I don't think God would do that. And then they both go home and live happily ever after. So you're saying this test was essentially designed to pass. She's going to drink a potion that's not going to make her belly distend. So what? She has a little bit of nausea. Right. And then they go home and everything's fine. And you're good with that. And his jealousy is put to rest and they're able to get on with their lives. I'm so glad he feels better. It's better than the alternative. That's what I'm... Well, I can I see that, but I mean, we're, I don't agree. All right. Well, we're going to agree to disagree here. But I continue to struggle with this text because of how it's been used to justify nasty attitudes and behaviors towards women. And also because it has had lasting implications in Jewish law. In what way? Well, for one, the rabbis say that a woman who has committed adultery is actually now forbidden to continue to have sex with her husband because the Torah refers to her as having been defiled. And that means for the rabbis that she is forbidden to have sex from that point on with her husband. So even if they're reconciling, they can't have makeup sex. Right. But we have found workarounds for that today. Workarounds. <laughs> well, yeah. First of all, we make it very hard to prove that adultery has ever really happened. And even if the woman herself admits to it, we take her testimony as inadmissible. Oh my God. It seems sometimes like all of commentary is a workaround. Hmm. So listen, that's how I deal with it. But what I'm really wondering, Abby, is how do you as a Reformed Jew deal with this? I mean, does this challenge your notion of the Torah as sacred? Well, I don't, first of all, love the 
the question as a Reformed Jew. I would, I'll answer as a Jew. Okay. I have a problem with this text. I reject this ritual. And I still think the Torah is a sacred document, and I can hold both thoughts. Because the, the Torah is sacred in the sense that it is enduring, magical, extraordinary, challenging, resonant, but it isn't a blueprint for living. It's not a handbook. And it's not meant to be followed to the, let- to the letter in that sense. And I don't think it's even been, I know it hasn't been followed to the letter by Orthodox Jews either. So whether we are reformed- What do you mean by that? I mean, you're not stoning someone who isn't uh, mm-hmm. observing the Sabbath accurately, I mean, correctly. So there are plenty of times that you've, you, your community has chosen, picked and chosen what you feel is comfortable in terms of halacha. You're not, it's not like all 613 mm-hmm. are being met every moment. I sat with, you know, Orthodox rabbi on Tisha B'av who wasn't fasting. There's, there's a lot. <laughs> there's I'm a lot. Ask you, but okay. But my point is that Orthodox Jews may accept the text as divine, but it is not an instruction manual. Okay, I didn't say that, but we do accept that it was divine, and we deal with difficult passages through interpretation. But I want to know, how do you deal with difficult passages? I I identify them as difficult. I am interested in unpacking them and discussing them, but I am not wrestling with whether to live by them. Mm -hmm. And it feels like you are pretzeling yourself to be able to accept as holy a text that is offensive to you. Well, I start with the principle that it is holy and divine, and I have to make sense of how that that can square with a belief that God is good. You know, I think that's what the rabbinic enterprise of commentary and interpretation is all about. Well, as an artifact that is challenging and interesting, I can engage with the Soto ritual, but it is not our religion to me. Part of dealing with our religion also includes rejecting parts of it, and that's sometimes hard. But in this case, it's not hard for me. It's in the tradition, it's in the text, but I'm not struggling to find meaning in it. Well, I will continue to struggle. So Shabbat Shalom, Abby. Shabbat Shalom. Parsha in Progress is written and hosted by Rabbi Dove Linzer and Abigail Pogrebin. It's produced by Shira Talishkin. The show is executive produced by Josh Cross and Tablet Magazine. If you like the show, head over to iTunes and leave a review, rate us. That always helps more people find out about Parsha in Progress. And make sure to tell all of your friends. You can also write to us at ParshaInProgress at tabletmag.com. We'd love to hear your comments. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.